Matthew chapter 14 is where we're going to be headed this morning. So if you uh, have your Bible with you, you can turn to Matthew 14 as we continue our journey through the gospel according to Matthew. If you don't have a Bible, feel free to grab one from the seat pockets uh, there in front of you. Uh, if you're a technology person, you can pull it up on your uh, iPhone or your Satan song, whichever one you prefer. You can grab that and go to Matthew 14. And as we head that direction, since it's been a couple weeks, uh, we took a, a little bit of time off from the Gospel of Matthew to uh, observe Palm Sunday and Resurrection Sunday last week. Let me just remind you that the key word through the Gospel of Matthew is the word fulfilled. We see uh, Matthew talking about the fulfillment of prophecy over and over again that was embodied in the life and the work of Jesus Christ. And so as he goes through Old Testament prophecies, what you really find is all of them are pointing to the person of Jesus. And it doesn't just stop at the simple prophecies. We talked about this last week on Resurrection Sunday as I threw out there that even the feasts and the festivals, in fact, pointed back towards Jesus. When you look at the feasts that are listed in Leviticus 23, don't worry, we're not going to go through those again. But I wanted to point out how the Apostle Paul addressed this in Colossians chapter 2. Uh, Paul says in verse 16 of Colossians 2, Let no one judge you on food or drink or regarding a festival or new moon or Sabbath, which are shadows of things to come, but the substance are of Christ. And so the point that Paul's trying to make is that all of these Old Testament prophecies, these festivals, what they're essentially showing us is they're a shadow, but the reality of it is Jesus. Now this is something important for us to note, and it also goes along with traditions. So in our Western world, we can get so caught up in our traditions and how we like to do things, uh, we can oftentimes end up worshiping the shadow instead of the one who actually casts the shadow. Now that seems ridiculous when we think about you know, where you would go get your fruit from the fruit tree. No one would go to the shadow on the ground and try to pick an orange. Right? There's no fruit from that. And the same kind of non-fruitful activities happen when we go to the shadow and we forget the one who casts that. Now, Matthew, you might remember, I've mentioned before, he's different than the other synoptic accounts because he doesn't go through things chronologically. Uh, Mark and Luke cover things uh, in time order. And Matthew instead covers things topically. And his main topic, since he's writing to a predominantly Jewish audience, the religious believers, the religious right, if you will, his theme is Jesus is the Messiah, the Lion of the tribe of Judah. And I mentioned this when we did the intro to the book of Matthew, that the, the same four faces that were on the angelic beings that Ezekiel sees there in this heavenly scene that point towards the throne of God, that each gospel account is a different face looking towards the same Jesus. The face that, uh, m that Matthew addresses is the face of the lion, the lion of the tribe of Judah. And so that's the main theme of this gospel account. But then in that, there are several major sub-themes. And the one that we've been hitting on the last several weeks as we've gone through Scripture is there is a growing hatred of Jesus that the scribes and the Pharisees and the people in power do not like the message that he's putting out there because it threatens their way of life. And so there's now this growing hatred and animosity towards him. And as we head towards our scripture today, that's a lot of what's taking place. So that powerful people essentially are plotting against Jesus. And one of those is Herod 
the Tetrarch. So he's going to be the first character that we're going to come into as we begin. Matthew 14, we'll pick up in verse 1, and we'll start by going through verse 12 this morning. And we read, At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard the report about Jesus and said to his servants, This is John the Baptist. He is risen from the dead, and therefore the powers are at work in him. For Herod had laid hold of John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. Because John had said to him, It is not lawful for you to have her. And although he wanted to put him to death, he feared the multitude because they counted him as a prophet. But when Herod's birthday was celebrated, the daughter of Herodias danced before him and pleased Herod. Therefore he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. And so she, having been prompted by her mother, said, Give me John the Baptist's head here on a platter. And the king was sorry. Nevertheless, because of the oaths and because of those who sat with him, he commanded it to be given to her. And then verse 10, And so he sent and had John beheaded in prison. And his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl, and she brought it to her mother. Then his disciples came and took away the body, and buried it, and went and told Jesus. And so we see this accounting now of the death of John the Baptist. As we go through this story, what you find is there are several names that I want to highlight that pull information out of these characters. We can look and do a little bit of a study on them. Now, the first character we see is Herod the Tetrarch there in verse 1. This name is actually a title. So Herod the Tetrarch is, in fact, Herod Antipas. And we see through the New Testament accounts, there are several different Herods. And it can get very confusing as you go through this because, in fact, there are six different Herods listed out in the New Testament. So Herod isn't specifically a name. It's a title like Pharaoh or Caesar. The first Herod we come across is Herod the Great. You remember as uh, Jesus is born, and the Magi come into the Jerusalem, Judea area. They go to King Herod to ask him about the sign, the king of the Jews. So this is Herod the Great, and he is father of Herod Archelaus, Herod Philip, Herod Antipas, and Herod Agrippa I. Now, uh, Herod the Great, it turns out, uh, even though that was his title, he was not a great guy. He was actually a completely awful human being. Uh, from the story of Jesus, what we remember is as the Magi visit and talk about the king of the Jews, what does he order to be done in Bethlehem? Because he was so worried about losing his crown, his title, he has all the baby boys in Bethlehem uh, put to death, to and under. So truly an awful human being. Uh, in fact, he wasn't even just awful towards uh, Jesus. Anyone that threatened his power, he was awful towards. Uh, causing the Caesar at the time to say, it is safer to be one of Herod's pigs than one of his sons. He was actually known for putting to death his own children who he thought might threaten his rule and reign. So really an all-around uh, awful guy. Now, he's called Herod the Great because of what he was was a great and tremendous builder. So he actually was responsible for the rebuilding effort that happened to the temple that began way back in the time of Zerubbabel. So the temple that Jesus would have gone into was essentially constructed and finished over a 46-year period by Herod the Great. So he had, did many great building projects, um, just not a guy you probably want to have over for Thanksgiving dinner. Now, he had four sons 
that because he was such an egomaniac, he didn't want any of his sons to take over the whole territory that he dominated, and so he split it up into four parts, and the name Tetrarch means a fourth part. So when we see Herod the Tetrarch, this is one of his sons that was just in charge of one of the fourth parts, and that would be Herod Antipas. But before we get there, his next son, uh, Herod Archelaus, uh, didn't have a cool title like Herod the Great, but he was just as awful as his dear old dad. In fact, he uh, took over this area of Jerusalem and Judea after his dad had died, and so he was so bad that when Jesus got word that Herod the Great had passed away, when Joseph got word that Herod the Great had passed away, he didn't want to take Jesus back to Bethlehem uh, for fear of Herod Archelaus and instead took him up to the Galilee region away from this guy. So also not a very good man. Now skipping down to Herod Agrippa I, uh, this is a person we see detailed out in Acts chapter 12. You're beginning to see a bit of a family line here. Uh, also not a very good guy. He was responsible for the beheading of the apostle James, the brother of John. Now Herod uh, Agrippa I, we see him speaking in Acts chapter 12. He's a big part of persecution towards the church. But in Acts chapter 12, as he's busy enslaving Peter and, uh, and James and John, and then eventually beheading uh, James, that the people begin to cry out and, and actually cheer for Herod uh, Agrippa I. And so what they say to him in verse 21, So on a set day, Herod arrayed in his royal apparel, sat on his throne, and gave an oration to them. He gave a great speech. And the people kept shouting, the voice of a God and not of a man. They're chanting at him. And he's so excited about the chants that are now coming his way. And then in verse 23, immediately the angel of the Lord struck him. And because he did not give glory to God, he was eaten by worms and died. <laughs> so, uh, by the way, if you think you got a messed up family, it is nothing like the Herods. Like, it, it, you got nothing on these guys. This dude was eaten by worms. It's in the book. That's amazing. All right, so Herod Agrippa II, which is son to Agrippa I, uh, he wasn't all that much better than his dad, but he was a part of the trial that the apostle Paul was subject to when he was imprisoned by Felix there in Caesarea Maritime. So if you checked out Acts 26, you would see yet another Herod. But to go back to these two guys that are a part of our story today, We've got uh, Herod the Tetrarch, or Herod Antipas. And the issue between these two is, uh, as Herod Antipas was going back to Rome to visit his brother Philip, uh, while he's there, uh, he runs into Philip's wife, a lady named Herodias. And apparently, uh, Herodias was some kind of a looker, uh, but there's a couple issues with that. One, he was married to his brother, and secondly, uh, this lady was actually his niece. She was actually the daughter of Archelaus. So one brother had already married his niece. He's now stolen his niece away from his brother. And this is the incestual, uh, awful relationship that John the Baptist is actually speaking out against. You can begin to see some of the atrocities that were taking place. And this is all happening in Jerusalem and Judea. This is supposed to be God's country. And so this is the issue between uh, Herod Antipas and Herod uh, Philip. Now, all of these guys, this whole family, were what we call uh, Idumeans. And essentially what that means is they were descendants of Esau. They were actually family, cousins to the Jews. 
Now, being descendants of Esau, uh, like with Herod the Great rebuilding the temple, uh, they would dabble in Judaism. They loved the pomp and the circumstance and all the traditions and the festivals uh, of being Jewish. Um, they just didn't like actually following the rules. <laughs> I mean, you know, who wants rules in the way? And so this is the issue for uh, all of these guys, essentially, that they would play around with the Jewish faith, but they didn't really want to walk in obedience. Now, I mention that um, because this next thing I put on the screen I think holds true in our Western church today, that pretending to be a believer does not make you one. That we can get dressed up all we want, we can put on our finest clothes, we can enjoy all the pomp and all the circumstance, but the reality is uh, what what John says is that this is how you know you love God, that you keep his commandments, and they are not a burden. That so often we, we want to make it look like we got it all together, right? We want to have all the things that show that we're actually falling hard after Jesus, um, but there is no obedience. So this is very much the case for uh, the entire Herod clan. But also what I want to point out uh, is that when you make a decision like John the Baptist to call out a popular person, um, it is not going to be uh, very popular. When you make a decision to call out a powerful person, it's not going to be a popular decision for you. It turns out powerful people don't like their sin to be pointed out to them, which is precisely what John the Baptist is doing. And it seems based on the story, he wasn't doing it just every now and again that every time John would even hear something about a Herod, he would bring this back up again. So over and over again, John the Baptist is pointing this out. But in the life of Herod Antipas, what we find is here's a guy who's dominated by lust, but then he's motivated by fear. In particular, the fear of the people. He's motivated by the fear of the people, but he's also fearful of what God might do. He believes John the Baptist might very well be a prophet. He doesn't like the message. And he certainly doesn't like his wife chirping in his ear about John the Baptist speaking ill of her over and over again. But he's also fearful of God, which we're actually called to have a healthy fear of God, not to be fearful of him. And it's a very a different thing when, we, when you begin to look at it, that, that we should have an awe and a respect and a reverence, a knowledge of knowing that he wants to take care of us. But when you're going completely in the face of the Lord, it's a fearful thing. It's terrifying, and that's the spot that Herod Antipas is in. Now then, to the next character in these verses, uh, we find Herod's uh, wife, this lady named Herodias. And so as we look at the person of Herodias, what we realize is uh, true is the statement that hell hath no fury like a woman scorned. I mean, this lady does not like the story John the Baptist is putting out there about her. Now, it's all true, but she still doesn't care for it very much. And so she is so hateful towards John the Baptist and his message that she actually puts her own daughter out there. She sacrifices her, in a way, her innocence, in order to get her way. And what I mean by that is uh, when the Bible mentions that she danced for these men, understand this was not a, an innocent uh, you know, nicey-nice dance. This was sexual and sensual, and it was around a bunch of nasty, old, drunken creeps. That's who she put her daughter out there in front of to dance for these men. And so we have a, a far a different scene, and, and what we also find is throughout Scripture, and really throughout history, uh, no woman that is of any 
a good report or of any kind of a, a proud family lineage would have subjected herself to this. And if you go back to the a story of Queen Esther, uh, in, there in the book of Esther, what we see at the beginning of that book, what happens is uh, the king at the time, the king of the Medo-Persian Empire, Artaxerxes, he calls for his wife, Queen Vashti, to come and dance for him and all of his drunken buddies. And what she do? She refuses. Because she knows that no woman of a good reputation would possibly subject herself to this. So the mother here, Herodias, is using her daughter to advance her agenda. Now, also, it's interesting to note that she asked for the head of John the Baptist, not just to have his head lopped off, but to have it brought on a platter, indicating, bring it now. The reason she asked for it now is because she knows her husband, Herod Antipas, is spineless. He's a coward. He's afraid of the people. And if he got a chance to wiggle out of this thing, he was going to figure out a way not to behead John the Baptist. And so she makes it very clear and very difficult for her husband to back out of this. So here Herod is, he is now worried about a retribution from God, um, but he's not willing to actually follow God, which uh, leads me to the next point. That is uh, wrongdoing. Doing what you know intentionally is wrong always leads to a lack of peace. You come across someone that is living in a life of habitual sin, and what you will find is someone that has no peace. There is no joy in that spot. Now, I find it fascinating as well, as we look at this, that Herod is convinced that Jesus is actually the resurrection of John the Baptist. He's now so worried about uh, John being resurrected because he's heard of the great miracles, the unbelievable signs that Jesus was doing. Except if you look at the life of John the Baptist, he did no great signs. He did not do a single miracle, which begs the question, why did Herod think that John, that Jesus was the resurrection of John the Baptist? And it's simply this, that they had a similar character. That they had a similar character. And I think about uh, how often Jesus is actually not after us for signs and wonders and miracles. He's just after us for character. That we have in our head that, that we need to be competent in order to do things. Lord, if you would just empower me to be able to do this thing, just give me the ability to go in and heal people. Or give me the ability, this great gift of prophecy or speaking in tongues. If you just give this to me, then I'll be able to do a great and mighty work. And I think often the Lord is saying, I'm twice as worried about your character as I am your competency. <laughs> I want to see character built in you. And so what I love about John the Baptist is the connection here is actually that he was like the character of Jesus. Now, as I've mentioned before, uh, Herod Antipas was dominated uh, by lust. He was motivated by fear, but then he was also polluted by power. That This desire to keep and hold on to his powerful position, uh, this thing polluted him. And this is very much uh, what we find in our lives, that when you let a little bit of compromise take place, that compromise eventually leads to corruption, and corruption always leads to death. And in the life of Herod Antipas, what's you know, fascinating about this guy that was so intent on holding on to his power, um, after he had divorced his first wife so he could marry his niece and his brother's wife, 
Um, it turns out when you divorce uh, the daughter of an Arabian prince, they don't think that's all that awesome when you divorce their daughter. So he sent a whole army in to actually attack Herod Antipas and completely embarrassed him, humiliated him even in front of uh, Caesar, which caused his own brother to whisper lies into the ears of Caesar, and eventually Herod Agrippa and Herodias were sent and imprisoned on the island of Gaul, this, uh, island, this prison island, sort of like when John was on Patmos. It was such an awful place uh, that sadly... Uh, Antipas and Herodias both took their own lives there on that island. So we see what the ultimate end is for allowing corruption to take place in our life. And it begins with compromise, where I just, what if I just do this, or just allow this piece into my life, and then eventually it corrupts all of it. Now then the final character we see in this first 12 verses is none other than John the Baptist. And so for John, uh, what we find is that his message as it relates to Herod was not a popular one. And yet, uh, for him, there are some hills that he thought were just worth dying on. That there's some messages that were so important that he must uh, share those messages. And we see the similar thing for a guy uh, we reviewed last week. His name was Jesus. He thought there was a hill worth dying on too. <laughs> but the hill that he thought was worth dying on... I think we can find similarities to what John did. It wasn't actually birthed out of hate or anger. It was actually out of love. Which leads to the next thing to comment on as we look at the life of John the Baptist. Is it possible that he was actually the only guy that truly loved Herod Antipas? That he loved Herod enough that he was willing to tell him the truth? That, that so often... We think that, that passing over hard things and not reviewing the difficult and just, you know, slapping a little lipstick on it, we can just call it good and let it pass. But the reality is when we don't communicate truth to people, it's not actually loving. Now, Warren Wiersbe's got a famous quote, and it goes like this, that truth without love is brutality, but love without truth is hypocrisy. And so often when, when we have people that want to be straight shooters, right? You've heard of the straight shooter. I just tell it like it is. I'm brutal with the, with the honest truth. Well, most of the time it lacks love. And so when you're brutally honest, it feels like you're just brutal. <laughs> like, and what I think is also funny about brutally honest guy is they don't ever like it when somebody's brutally honest with them. Have you noticed that? That really ticks them off. Don't do that. And so it, it's oftentimes uh, it's hated, but then the other side, and I think this is a spot at least to the last 15 to 20 years that I, I see the Western church is at, is it's love with no truth. It's all, it's all love, love, love. All you need is love. Do, 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 do. Oh, love is all you need. I mean, that's all you need. Come on in. The problem is there's no truth to it. We're not willing to say a sin is a sin. It's in the book. Now, the flip side, when things were brutal in the church 100 years ago, we wanted to stamp it out and burn you at the stake. That's also not great. But when we've gone all the way the other direction, we refuse to actually be straightforward about what is sin because we love you. I don't want to see you suffer in this thing anymore. I love you enough to have an awkward conversation with you. 
And by the way, if you've had a conversation like that, it is stinking awkward. It is hard to talk to someone about sin in their life. It's not fun for anybody involved, and yet it's not loving to completely avoid it. So when we look through Scripture, what most of the time what people want to talk and throw out there is uh, Matthew chapter 7, right? Bible says, judge not lest ye be judged. Don't judge me, man. Bible says, don't judge me, which is actually accurate. The Bible does say, uh, don't judge. It says, judge not lest ye be judged. It's right there, verse 1, chapter 7. But then if you fast forward just a little bit, we covered this a few weeks ago, uh, what Jesus does call us to do. If you picked up in verse 17, he says, Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Therefore, by their fruits you will know them. So while folks like to throw out there to us that we're not to be judges, what we are called to be are fruit inspectors. We are called to inspect fruit in the lives of others, but first, starting in our own life. The, the impetus has to begin with introspection. I need to look into myself first, see what bad fruit I've got growing in here and cut that thing down and get rid of it before God has to first. Then once I've done that and dealt with my own bad fruit, now first in prayer. By the way, a lot of prayer. Don't go into one of these conversations without bathing that thing in prayer, but then addressing someone directly about sin in their life because you love them. You don't want to see them suffer in that thing. You know it's going to bring no peace. And then second piece of this is, don't be surprised at their response. <laughs> don't be surprised when you bring up uh, Herod's sin to him if he wants to take your head off. There's often times where you are going to get completely swiped right across here. But don't be surprised by that. In fact, um, if you love him enough, uh, you'll address it. Because the difference between a Herod and a John the Baptist is Herod was terrified of what others might think. He was motivated by his fear of man. In Proverbs chapter 29, verse 25, I'll go back there quickly for you. Solomon writes, the fear of man brings a snare. It's a trap. But whoever trusts in the Lord shall be safe. So for the one who fears man, well, if you've ever been in that spot, you know it is impossible to get the approval of man. Over and over and over again, the rules will change, the, the circumstances will change, and you will not be able to gain approval of man. But instead, fearing the Lord is the thing we should do. This is what John the Baptist knew all too well. So he feared the Lord, he respected him, he was in awe of the Lord Jesus. And because of that, he was saved. Now, it doesn't seem like that when we look at the story. When you look at verse 12, what we say, see is that he is beheaded, and then his disciples came and took away the body and buried it. But notice, um, they didn't come and take away John. They came and took away the body. John wasn't there anymore. John's soul and his spirit were perfectly safe. 
the only thing this world can do, the worst they could possibly come up with, is to destroy the body. Jesus says, don't fear the one that can destroy the body. Fear the one that can destroy the soul for all of eternity. This is what fearing the Lord looks like. There's actually freedom in this, to know that the worst man can do to you is to kill you, and then you get to go be with Jesus. It's not so bad, really, when you think about it. That's precisely what John the Baptist knew. But then uh, notice also with me in this verse, then his disciples came and they took away the body and buried it and went and told Jesus. When you're in that spot where you address sin in someone else's life and then you get your head lopped off, here's a suggestion from Scripture. You're to take the dead body from that thing and you're to bury it. And then you're to take it to Jesus. So often... We want to take it to our sister, or our brother, or our husband, or our wife, or our friends, or the whole church for that matter. But what the scripture actually says is we are to first bury it and take it to Jesus. He is the mighty counselor. He is the one that can actually address our spiritual issues because that's really what we've got in these spots. We've, we've done what we thought he commanded us to do and directed us to do and now we're hurt. And then so often I don't bring it to him. I want to talk to everybody else. And what, what Scripture's telling us is, bring it to me. Bring it to me first. Let's talk about this, you and I. Now, there may be chance in case to talk to others about it, but first bring it to Jesus. Make sure he's good with it. And even before that, I'll be willing to bury it. Now then, continuing on, in verse 13, and when Jesus heard it, the story of John the Baptist, he departed from there by boat to a deserted place by himself. But when the multitudes heard it, they followed after him on foot to the cities. And when Jesus went out, he saw a great multitude, and he was moved with compassion for them and healed their sick. And when it was evening, his disciples came to him saying, There is a deserted place, and the hour, this is a deserted place, and the hour is late. Send the multitudes away that they may go into the villages, and buy themselves food. And so Jesus is now in a spot where uh, his, one of his closest friends and his cousin, John the Baptist, has just lost his life. And also his ministry has gotten su uh, to such a popularity standpoint that he has now drawn the attention of Herod Antipas, who's in control of this entire region. Now, for many of us, uh, we think that when our ministry really takes off, when our business really takes off, or when uh, relationships begin to take off and things are going great, what do we do? We press in and we keep going, right? It's time to hammer down, drop the clutch on that bad boy, and let it rip. This is what we're waiting on. But notice what Jesus did. He went to a deserted place by himself. What Jesus knew, and this is a pattern that would do us good to pay attention to and follow, is that before things really take off, even in the middle of it seeming like everything's going great guns, take an opportunity and rest. One of my favorite sayings is, when your output exceeds your input, your upkeep will be your downfall. This is important uh, to note if you're in ministry, by the way, because we can put out and out and out and have no input. It's also important if you're trying to witness to people at work or at home in your family because you can give and you can give and you can give and I'm telling you one hour a week sitting in here 
ain't enough input. It's not. You've got to have a time to have input through the week so that your output does not exceed your input and you do not have a fall. And there have been many people in ministry and in life who have had mighty falls because they did not keep up with their input. And so the question is, do you have a deserted place? Do you have a place to go that is quiet, that isn't filled with, um, this is what it sounds like at my house, mom, 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 to the point where the only deserted place she has left to go is, go ahead ladies, the bathroom, right? And so as she's there, and the only deserted place she can find outside the door, what happens? But mom, 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 till finally she says, honey, what is it? Like they're being mean to me. Go deal with your kids. Sorry, you had to follow along there. Sometimes I call her mom, see? The point is, you have to have a deserted place. You have to have a spot to go to where you can just get away. It doesn't have to be for days. It doesn't have to be for weeks. Maybe sometimes that'd be better. But do you have a spot to go to even for an hour, two hours, so that you can recharge? That's what Jesus is trying to share with these people, with his disciples who went there with him. Now then in verse 14, and when Jesus went out, he saw the great multitudes. So obviously his quiet time didn't last very long about like my quiet time with Zeke the dog who likes to chew on a bone or lick his peanut butter-filled Kong ball right next to me while I read the Bible. That's my quiet place. Um, He was moved with compassion for them and healed their sick. And so the question is, uh, what are you moved with compassion for? What stirs your heart? What gets you going whenever you hear that story or, or see what's taking place? What, what actually stirs you up with compassion inside? And then the second part of that question is, what do you have the resources in order to accomplish? What talents do you have? What gifts have you been given? For Jesus, he was anointed by God from up on high. He could actually heal people. He could do anything he wanted to do. And so he was moved with compassion, and then he had the anointing and the ability to heal people. And you know what he did? He healed people. That's precisely what he did. He used his anointing in order to fulfill his calling. And I love this quote from uh, Angela did a women's Bible study years ago by Rebecca Lyons. And she said, "Um, your calling is where your talents and your burden collide. Your calling is where your talents and your burden collide. Uh, They collide. Now, for some of you, you might think, look, I don't have any talents. I don't have any resources. uh, But but, uh, let me just share a little story with you. So a few years ago, when we were at Parkland Chapel, we heard about a couple kids in our church. And they'd been in foster care and been a part of our church for two years. And so uh, as we we went along, uh, we heard that the parents' rights had been terminated. And so ladies in the church had gathered, and there was a great move of compassion for these kids because they began to feel like uh, our kids, right? These were Parkland Chapel kids. Somebody needed to do something about this. And so uh, we were asked uh, to pray. Would you pray that someone in the church would step up and adopt these children? 
And so my wife came home that Sunday after staying there for, you know, an extra hour or two and left me to feed the children for lunch. But anyway, I wasn't bitter. I'm getting better about it. Um, so she gets back and she said, hey, I, I want to talk to you about something that I'm burdened about. Would you pray with me? And she shared with me about these children. I said, yes, I, I will pray for someone to adopt them. But be very clear, the someone is not us. We already have four children. We have a lot going on. So let's just be straightforward about this lady. It ain't us, not this place. Much to my surprise, um, it was us. <laughs> it was us. So after praying about it and just being uh, moved with compassion about these kids, what we realized as we made the pros and cons list is that we had the resources. We weren't in any great financial need. We had plenty. Our house, it got a little tight for a while, but God gave us another house. We had plenty of room. And then you talk about the simple resources. The girl was in the same grade as the twins. We're already driving to school. You got the bus to take them there. The, the boy was in the same grade as Cameron. So we're already heading to the same schools. Literally the resources had already been laid out there. Um, the biggest roadblock was our comfort. <laughs> that's what the Lord revealed. The thing that I didn't want to give up was, um, that's going to be really hard. But God made it clear he didn't call me into a life of comfort. And so for many people, um, we're compassionate, right? We've been moved, and yet there is not the resource. Or for others, there are the resources, and yet there is no compassion. And what I'm sharing with you is that when God moves on your heart and you realize you have the resources to do this thing, uh, you're called into that. It doesn't have to be more complicated. Now, for the disciples, as they uh, saw the people there arriving, their response was very different. They said, um, Lord, this is a deserted place, and the hour was late. Send them away. <laughs> they had the same response, by the way, um, that I had to that question. It's getting late. It's deserted. Send them away. Surely somebody will take care of them. It's not how it works when we actually lay it down before the Lord sometimes. And so, uh, this was not the formula that Jesus went with. In fact, in verse 16, I love his response. But Jesus said to them, uh, they do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. You want them fed? You do it. You take care of it. In verse 17, and they said to him, we have here only five loaves and two fish. And he said, bring them here to me. In verse 19, and then he commanded the multitudes to sit down on the grass, and he took the five loaves and the two fish, and looking up to heaven, he blessed and broke and gave the loaves to the disciples, and the disciples gave to the multitudes. And so they all ate and were filled, and they took up 12 baskets full of fragments that remained. Now those who had eaten were about 5,000 men besides women and children. And so what we find in this story is one of both blessing and of breaking. Now, I think it's interesting that these men said, what would you have us do? And Jesus says, you give them something to eat. They immediately come and say, well, what is it that you have? They only had five loaves and two fish. They seemingly had very meager resources, almost nothing to work with. And you know they brought this to Jesus just out of, as a joke. Like, this is all... We've got, but what's the Lord say? Bring it here. Bring it to me. And so they bring their meager resources, 
And then the Lord does something I think is interesting and important for us to point out is that he had the people sit down in groups. He had them sit down in groups and organize them so that the disciples could have lanes of service to take care of people. And so when we see a church and events and things like this put on and it feels like uh, maybe it needs more structure, well, Jesus loves structure. Now, we have to give enough room for the Holy Spirit to actually work in that structure, which is the problem with the other side of the coin. We get so structured with rules, God has no room to work. And so in this spot, he sets people down in groups so that there are aisles of service so people can actually be ministered to. Now, also fascinating to find out that there were 12 baskets left over, and he had how many apostles? 12. They were all taken care of. And what we read is they were not only taken care of, but as Jesus fed them, he blessed, excuse me, in verse 20, they ate and were filled. The word there in the Greek literally means glutted. They ate so much fish and so much bread that when Jesus puts on a potluck, you're getting your belly stuffed full. If they were to listen to his teaching, they needed to have a full belly so that they weren't distracted. And oftentimes, the practical has to be put in place so the spiritual can happen. Why do we need practical measures and means? So that the spiritual can actually take place in people's lives. Precisely what we see in this story. Now, also interesting about the 12 baskets is um, that means somebody didn't get a basket. (laughs) There wasn't one left over for Jesus. Just goes to show you how much he loves us so interested in being a servant leader. He is the picture of what it looks like. If you do any kind of leadership training at all, let me encourage you in your workplace, point that thing back to Jesus. He is the quintessential servant leader, willing to take care of everyone else above himself, not worried at all about what he might eat. I love that about this story. Now then, we we focus in on the resources Right, the five loaves and the two fishes, and we think so often, I don't have enough resources. I'm not uh, trained up enough. I don't have enough Bible learning to be able to, to speak to people and address anyone's needs spiritually. What I love about, um, I love about the Old Testament. In 1 Samuel chapter 14, there seemed to be a mighty army that had come up against Saul and all of his companions. It was the Philistines. And so as Saul's son, Jonathan, he was one of the good guys, by the way. As Jonathan was looking out across the armies of the Philistines, this is what he says in 1 Samuel chapter 14, verse 6. Then Jonathan said to the young man who bore his armor, his armor bearer, Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised, and it may be that the Lord will work for us. For nothing restrains the Lord from saving by many or by few. But so often we think we don't have enough resources and what maybe the Lord wants to do is save by few. His arm isn't too short. He can save by either many or by few. And on that day, Jonathan and his armor bearer, they had a great victory because the Lord saw so. And the other thing I wanted to point out from Genesis chapter 12 is that we were blessed so that we could be a blessing. When you look at the resources that God's put in your hands, 
those weren't just um, because he loves you and that's it and the buck stops here. He does love you, good news, but he didn't give you resources just so you could sit around and not use them. In fact, what he would tell Abraham here is he called him out of Ur of the Chaldees. He tells Abraham this, I will bless those who bless you and I will curse those who curse you and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed, church. So as you receive blessings, what God's saying is, I'm blessing you so that you can go and bless others. But sandwiched in the middle of this, and this is maybe uh, not the most popular part of the story, and yet we're going to teach it this way anyway. Um, Notice Jesus takes the bread, and then he breaks it. And then all the people are blessed. But in the middle is brokenness. That so often for us to be able to be used by the Lord mightily, we must actually be broken greatly, deeply in fact. Jesus, the bread of life, allowed his own body to be broken so the entire world could be blessed. And we see a symbol of that here in this story. Now the Old Testament story I'd liken that to is the one of Gideon from Judges chapter 7. I'll give you a quick overview for the sake of time. But here in uh, chapter 7 of Judges, uh, Gideon, one of the most unlikely characters in the Old Testament, has been put in charge of the nation of Israel to deliver them from the hand of the evil Midianites. Now the Midianites were bad guys. Um, They would wait until the Israelites would get their entire harvest completely threshed. That means all the grain is now ready to be made into bread. As they get it to that point, Uh, the Midianites would come into their threshing floors and they would wipe them out and they'd take all the grain away. They were essentially starving the people of the nation of Israel. They had no bread to eat because of the wicked Midianites. And so God calls Gideon to go and be a a powerful uh, hand of the Lord to defeat the Midianites. Now he's terrified about this task and yet he eventually, after he gets done fleecing the Lord, (laughs) he eventually agrees to do what the Lord says. And so looking upon uh, the army of the Midianites, they had 135,000 troops that were gathered and camped around them. And Gideon calls for all the men of Israel that were willing to fight to come. And 30,000 men show up to go against 135,000 Midianites. Not great odds. Five to one at this point nearly. So if you're Gideon, you're not feeling that great about 30,000 to 135. Now then the Lord tells him, uh, Gideon... I want you to ask that any of the men that are here that are fearful, that they just go home. And so you know from Gideon's standpoint, he's thinking, well, peer pressure, most of the guys are going to tough this thing out, but there's probably going to be a few hundred go home. So he gives this address. Any of you are fearful, go home now. You don't have to face the Midianites. And 20,000 of them leave. (laughs) I mean, now you got to want to throw up. I mean, it's 10,000 of you and 135,000 Midianites, men trained for battle, by the way. They're not farmers. The Israelites were agrarian society. And so awful odds. So what does God tell Gideon to do next? He says, Gideon, you still got too many. (laughs) You got too many. Because I know you well enough. Uh, He knows these are a bunch of guys. And what do we do whenever we win a battle? I mean, it's chest puffed out time. You should have saw me, babe. It was 13 to 1. And that's when I strapped on my sword. And I went to town against the Midianites, took them all down. God knows this about them. And so he says, you got too many. 
So now I want you to go down to the spring, and I want you to have the men drink from the spring of Herod. Drink from that spring, and whichever men put their face down at the water and kneel down, uh, I want you to send them home. But the ones that cup the water, and they're looking around because they're ready for somebody to attack and lap it like a dog, those are your guys. 300 men lap the water like a dog. And now God says, those are numbers I can work with. 300 Israelites who drink like a bunch of dogs to go against 135,000 trained troops. Now the battle plan gets better from here. Um, God says, now I want you to go in groups of 100, three groups. I want you to surround the camp. And, and, and you know Gideon's thinking, okay, you're going to give us swords, machetes, rocks, something awesome. God says, I want you to take a trumpet in your right hand, and I want you to take a candle in your left and cover it with a pitcher. Go into battle like that. That might be the worst battle plan of all time. This makes Joshua marching around Jericho seem like a great idea. This is a horrible battle plan. Yet by faith, Gideon does what God asks. And so with that in mind, verse 18 of chapter 7, I'll start in verse 17 actually, and he, Gideon, said to them, Look at me and do likewise and watch. And when I come to the edge of the camp, you shall do as I do. And when I blow the trumpet, I and all who are with me, then you shall blow the trumpet on every side of the camp and say, The sword of the Lord and of Gideon. And so Gideon and a hundred men who were with him came to the outpost of the camp in the, in the beginning of the middle watch. That's in the middle of the night. Just as they had posted the watch, they blew the trumpets and broke the pitchers that were in their hands and then the three companies blew the trumpets and broke the pitchers. Then they held the torches in their left hands and the trumpets in their right. Blowing the trumpets, they cried, The sword of the Lord and of Gideon. And every man stood in his place all around the camp, and the whole army ran and cried and fled. Before they could have victory, though, the vessel had to be broken. Throughout the Old Testament scriptures, the vessel, the earthen vessel, is always a picture of our bodies. And without the breaking, the light doesn't shine through. I love that in this story, they cried out the sword of the Lord. What was the one thing they didn't actually have in their hands? <laughs> they didn't have a sword. They cried out the sword of the Lord, and they had no swords. But the only offensive weapon that we are told that we possess as Christians in the New Testament is the word of God. That's the only offensive weapon. What these men had was a direct word from God. They had all the weapons they could ever need. But they first had to be broken. They first had to trust enough to allow themselves to be broken so the light could shine through. And so the question is, are you willing? Are you willing to be broken so that others can see the light shine through? It goes against everything we want to believe in our culture. It goes against everything we want to believe that, that we are to be, we're to be strong and proud. I'm American. 
and my chest puffed up. But what the Lord says is, I'm calling you to be broken so that I can shine through. I was talking to one of my uh, dear friends this week, and a few years ago when I was getting ready uh, to share on a Wednesday night, he called me and we had this long discussion, and, and he hadn't come back to the Lord. In fact, what he told me is, he said, I just hate Christians. <laughs> I hate them because they're all so hypocritical. And that's how he felt. And so in tears as we shared about the, the struggles he'd had with Christians in his life, I talked to him about what God had done in mine through brokenness. Uh, he actually ended up coming back to the Lord. And, and here's what he said. And this, uh, this might not be the most politically correct uh, thing to say. But uh, years before, I had actually gotten myself so drunk that I threw up in his front yard. <laughs> and he said, any guy that could become a pastor after he threw up in my front yard being a drunken fool, I want to know that guy's God. I want to know his God. And that's how he came to know the Lord. <laughs> Through me being a complete fool, broken, but being willing to share that and say, look, bro, this was me then. This is not me now. I ain't got it all figured out yet, but I'm not that guy anymore. Through brokenness, oftentimes that's the light people need to see. It's not through our, our pithy sayings or our wisdom or the great word of the Lord. I want to think that so often that people would just go, boy, Pastor Brock shared this unbelievable wisdom with me. When some of the time it's just, this is the brokenness. <laughs> These are the pieces. And then the light gets to shine. And guess what? The Lord has a tremendous victory in that spot. And so, Father, we thank you and we praise you for the blessing that comes from brokenness. For the victory that happens uh, after we get to be broken for you and Lord I think so often we forget that how much of a blessing we get when others get blessed from our stories that those ways we used to be and the things that used to be uh, us and defined us they don't define us anymore what the apostle Paul says is that we are a new creation in Christ Jesus and so getting to share those stories um we really get to share about somebody who died and they have been resurrected. New creation. Thank you, Lord, for that. Father, we praise you in a place of brokenness for the blessing that gets poured out on others all around us. And we thank you for being the bread of life, willing to be broken on our behalf. In Jesus' name, amen. Please stand to sing your closing song.
open, you gave my heart a home. So I walked out of the darkness and into the light. From fear of shame to the hope of life. Mercy called my name and made a way to fly out of the darkness and into the light. Years of keeping secrets safe, wondering if I could change. Cause when you're hiding all alone, heart can turn into a stone and that's not the way I want to go so I walked out of the darkness and into the light from fear of shame into the hope of life mercy called my name and made a way to fly out of the darkness and to the light There's no place I'd rather be Your light is marvelous Your light is marvelous You have come to set us free You are marvelous Your light is marvelous La 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 So I walked out of the darkness and into the light From fear of shame to the hope of life First call my name and better way to fly out of the dark 